morning, friends. Good to see you today. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. Let me read uh, these few verses for us as we begin this morning. (coughs) Hear the word of the Lord. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is God's holy and inerrant word. May he bless what we've read. Let's pray for his help as we look into these verses this morning. Do quicken us afresh with your gracious spirit, Father. Give us eyes to see. Some of us have heard this story since we were children. And there's immense danger that we will stifle a yawn and believe we already know everything there is to know about these verses. I pray you'd shock our senses and show us afresh today, Jesus, who you are. Strengthen me to preach your word this morning. Quicken my mind and heart. And Jesus, we are dependent on you, your indwelling spirit, uh, to see and hear your truth. We ask this Savior in your name. Amen. Who is this? Or who then is this? Is a question the disciples were asking at the end of this account. And you might wonder, but I th- what do they mean? I th- don't they know who Jesus is? I mean, didn't they already know that he was the Son of God? Didn't they know that he was God's anointed King, the Messiah? Didn't they know pretty much all there was to know about Christ? They'd seen him cast out demons. They'd seen him heal people. Sometimes I, th- I believe you and I think along the same lines. You know, I, I, I know who Jesus is. He's been my Savior and Lord for years now, guiding me and directing me through life, what else is there for me to learn about Christ? And the truth is that the disciples and you and I still have an awful lot to learn about Christ. I'm speaking to you today, as well as myself. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson said it like this. Gary, if you would put on the Scottish voice filter for me. Oh, we don't have a Scottish voice filter, do we? Rats. 
He's got a great accent. I do not. Every test and trial, every storm in life is another opportunity for you to see the glory of Jesus Christ and discover his power in your life. I think that's pretty well said. Every test and trial, every storm in life is another opportunity for you to see the glory of Jesus Christ and discover his power in your life. Think, think of it this way. How could you and I know they're all, all there is to know about him? of whom the Apostle Paul said, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.3. How could we know all about him? Or as Paul says a few verses later, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. How could we, how could we dream that we know all there is to know about Jesus? We don't know all there is to know about Christ. Not by a long shot. There are great riches in store for those who pursue Jesus Christ, who follow hard after Christ, who love the Lord with all their soul, mind, and strength. There are riches ahead. Even for you, you saint that's long in the tooth, and have been around a while, and already know a thing or two. And you that are young and, and um, making this your own along the way, both of you need to know that there are great riches yet ahead of you in Christ. And this is especially true for those who cling to him through the storms of life. As uh, Dr. Ferguson put it so well, each storm is an opportunity for believers to gain a fresh insight, a fresh sight of the glory of Christ and leave us asking the same question, who then is this? Who is this? This is what we discover in these verses today. Storms help us see who Jesus is. Storms help us see who Jesus is. This is, why, this is what we discover in, in the drama that unfolds in our short passage today. Storms help us see who Jesus is. And as this drama unfolds, I want to walk you through three scenes of this account uh, we begin, of course, with scene one. And in scene one, uh, we find a great storm. Uh, an enormous storm descends on the Sea of Galilee just as Jesus and his disciples attempt to cross the lake. Uh, and let me point out three things to you about the storm. First of all, I want you to uh, understand the setting in which this storm takes place. Uh, look with me again at verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Uh, leading up to this, Jesus had been teaching the crowd in parables uh, on the, near the Sea of Galilee, uh, up near Capernaum, somewhere in this area here between the mouth of the Jordan River right here and between the city of Capernaum, up on the very northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. 
The parables are recorded for us in verses 1 through 34. We've studied those over the past uh, week or so. And you might recall the crowd eventually grew so large that Jesus had to get into a boat floating offshore to use that as a speaking platform, his uh, movable pulpit, if you will. Um, and, and here, as verse 35 begins, Mark seems to indicate that what comes next happens on the evening of that same day. Per perhaps to get away from the crowd for a while, uh, Jesus, uh, with his men, attempt to cross to the other side of the lake. And it seems that they leave right away, that they don't even go back to shore. Verse 36 indicates this, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. In other words, just as he was, they didn't go back to shore and and then leave. They they just turned the boat around. Apparently, they're with him there in the boat as he's teaching the crowd. And they set sail across the lake, headed roughly west, I would imagine. And this is the setting. Long day of teaching. Uh, the crowds offshore. Uh, evening is descending and they decide they need to uh, take a break. And so they head across the lake. This is the setting that we're looking at this morning. This is uh, when this storm takes place. The second thing I want you to notice here is actually the storm itself. Uh, they're crossing the lake. They encounter a huge windstorm. We see this in verse 37. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. The Sea of Galilee is well known for sudden squalls like this one. Uh, the lake is nearly 700 feet below sea level, making it the lowest freshwater lake on earth. Um, it's also surrounded, various pictures will show you that it's surrounded by hills and mountains. And so it sits in a kind of basin uh, and the valleys between these hills and mountains, they funnel uh, winds both from the, from the west, from off the Mediterranean Sea, and also uh, off of the desert to the east. And, and they descend on the Sea of Galilee, often stirring up these violent storms. This storm seems to be especially violent because Mark calls it a great windstorm. Or you could say an enormous windstorm. Or, or you could even say a megastorm. And this is uh, a picture. Uh, the caption said it was taken in Israel, and it's a little dark. I'm sorry you can't see it clearly, but the, I believe beyond uh, lies the Sea of Galilee. And so just uh, in your mind's eye, uh, picture yourself on an evening like this in the middle of a lake with a bolt of lightning uh, coming towards the tallest thing on the lake. The swells on uh, the lake grew so high that they were breaking over the sides of the boat. Uh, this is, of course, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. You see in the middle there that man who is about to be swept off his feet, and you see those waves are quite tall, four-foot waves at least, if not larger. In, in 1986, an ancient fishing boat was discovered uh, that dated from the time of Jesus, and this, there's its skeleton there. Uh, the sides of this boat um, were only about four feet tall, not exactly the kind of vessel you want to be in during a megastorm. So 
again, imagine for a moment what's happening out there on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, by this time, perhaps, um, the sail is hanging in shreds. There were at least four seasoned fishermen on the boat, and that's Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They're likely doing everything they possibly can to steer the vessel into the, into the swells uh, uh, to avoid it from being capsized. And then you have others. But what good is a tax collector like Matthew in a crisis like this? Or a revolutionary like Simon the Zealot? What, what did they do? While the skilled men were trying to steer the boat and keep it afloat, it's, I, I would guess that the rest of them were bailing as hard as they could. And maybe they only had their hands to, to bail the water out. But you can imagine the furious activity aboard this little boat. Uh, the uh, soaked to the skin, uh, using their hands to scoop out the water. It would have been desperate and exhausting work. And all of this, remember, was carried out in the dark. It was night. But then, but then there's verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. So in contrast to the furious panic taking place in the boat, Jesus is asleep in the back. And one pastor comments here, this was at least as remarkable as the storm. And this shows us not only um, the complete humanity of Jesus, he was, he was totally exhausted from teaching the crowd. And it also shows us his complete confidence in God the Father. Every moment of his earthly life was entrusted to the sovereign care of his heavenly Father. So he sleeps in complete peace. Mark describes the storm that sweeps down on this small vessel in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And then third, we hear the suspicion. Frightened uh, out of their senses and seeing the posture of Jesus, his disciples suspect that he doesn't really care about them. Verse 38 goes on to say, And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Listen to their tone of voice. First, this is, this is the language of panicked men who, who believe they're about to die. Even the seasoned fishermen uh, believe they're about to die. In fact, this sounds like the kind of bold rebuke that Peter might say to Jesus. Uh, remember that Mark's gospel is essentially Peter's account of the Lord's life. But no matter who speaks, they're clearly frightened by this mega storm and they all believe they're about to perish. And, and, and while the fishermen among them may have been familiar with squalls on the Sea of Galilee, they'd never experienced anything like this mega storm. And, and storms like this usually come in the daytime. That's why they fished at night. And, and so Peter and Andrew, James and John were used to relatively calm seas at night. 
but here they are in the darkness fighting a violent squall that, that they think is about to end their lives. Lord, teacher, we are perishing. So this is beyond anything they've ever seen on the lake. Even, even the experienced seamen believe death is very close. And beyond the tone of voice, uh, look at the words themselves. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They've been, they've been fighting for their lives. They've been bailing and steering and rowing. And, and Jesus has been sound asleep in the stern. He's not faking it either. He's not laying there with one eye open, seeing how the men will respond to this storm that they're in. He's exhausted and sound asleep. And observing him in that state, in their crisis, they reach the same conclusion that many of us have reached in our crises. He must not care. Perhaps we can excuse them for their conclusion. I mean, after all, they have yet to experience the upper room where Jesus so tenderly comforts them and prepares them for his departure. They have yet to experience the agony and torture that Jesus endured on the cross for them. And Jesus' resurrection is still ahead of them as well. So, so perhaps we can excuse the suspicion of these men when so much of Jesus' story was still in the future for them. But what's our excuse? We've already seen the sufferings that Jesus endured for us in his horrible death on the cross. And we've seen Jesus gloriously rise from the grave three days later and then ascend to the Father's right hand where according to the book of Hebrews, he ever lives to, to pray for us, intercede for us. Compared to what the disciples knew at this point, you and I know much, much more than they did. And yet in each new crisis, uh, you and I utter the very words that they did. Teacher, do you not care that I'm perishing? <clears throat> Commenting on uh, their suspicion, Dr. Ferguson said, do you not care was the cruelest question they could have asked because the very reason he was in the boat Indeed, in the world. And the reason he was going to die on the cross for them was precisely because he cared for them. Yet they were not persuaded in their hearts this was so. And as a result, they allowed the storm to come between them and the assurance of their master's devotion to them. He goes on to say that when you and I experience similar storms, we have a sure anchor in the cross. I know that sounds like a cliche, that something a Christian pastor is supposed to say in a church, we have an anchor in the cross. But what I mean by that is in the storms we face, you have an anchor in the cross. Do you want proof that your Savior cares and loves you? Do you want proof that your heavenly father cares? 
and loves you, then all that's required is to look back at the cross. And that's the proof. So when I was growing up, late 60s, early 70s, outside of Chicago, man, people were demonstrating all the time. And if you're my age, you remember the demonstrations about the Vietnam War, demonstrations about who knows what. It seemed like people were always demonstrating. And, and now it's come back as people, again, have begun to demonstrate this or that. Here's the ultimate demonstration. Uh, it's found in Romans 5.8. But God shows. Another version says demonstrates his love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, so I know that you read this and you're sitting here and perhaps this doesn't well up warm feelings in your heart and assurance of the love of Christ for you. So let me, let me tell you what this verse is. This verse is objective fact. Objective fact. It's an objective fact of history. This demonstration proves that Jesus Christ cares for his own people. You don't have to feel it. It's a verse with words. You simply have to trust it. Know that it's true, that in your storm right now, as you ride up the next swell, my Father loves me, and he proved it at the cross by giving his Son. It is a demonstration. And these men didn't know this or didn't remember it. They certainly hadn't been to the cross yet. But many of us have. This is true for you, provided you know Christ as your Savior and Lord. That is the, the big if at the beginning of this. Do you know Christ as your Savior and Lord? If... You do. Then he has proven his love for you. The Father and the Son have proven their loves for you through the cross. And if you want assurance in your storm to avoid this kind of suspicion, and I know you're thinking it because I think it all the time, that we both need to look back to the cross and see this objective fact that the Father does care. Jesus does care. They've proved it to us. Uh, they demonstrated it to us on the cross. Scene one. The curtain comes down. Uh, the great storm. The setting. Uh, then the storm blows in. And then the suspicion of the disciples is aroused. The curtain goes up on scene two in the next verse. And in scene two, we move from a great storm to a great calm. Here we see Jesus rebuke the wind and the waves uh, in verse 39. Look at what it says with me. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, 
And there was a great calm. Look at how Jesus addresses the wind and the sea, uh, speaks to them as if they're, if they're people uh, and not things, personification. He rebukes them or reproves them the way you might sternly uh, tell your child to be quiet. Uh, he addresses them that way as though they're living and animate. In reality, he's addressing the flow of wind sweeping down on the lake through the Galilean hills and churning up the water. Jesus is asserting his authority over a system of low pressure moving across northern Israel. If you'd look at our weather map today, uh, I'm not going to do that actually, that's what's happening. Jesus is asserting his authority authority. Uh, perhaps over a cold weather front that's moving across northern Israel. And with the water, he does the same thing. He asserts his authority over every, every water molecule in the lake, telling them to be quiet and still as well. And though he addresses them as if they're people, this is really what's happening. He's asserting his authority over the wind and the water. And what happens? That's what happens. A great calm. They both stop. And they stop immediately. Look, I, I don't want you to miss the cause and effect going on here. And maybe it's just so blatantly obvious. Uh, it's huge. The cause is that Jesus awoke, rebuked, and said, Peace be still. That's the cause. And the effect. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. I'm, I'm stressing cause and effect because a weather system and countless water molecules obeyed him. Jesus commands, and they respond. You and I cannot do this. And maybe you've shaken your fist at the sky because the weather's ruined your family picnic or your day at the beach or your golf game or the hootenanny on the last day of VBS. Oh my goodness. There have been a few times, have there not? Lord, Lord, this is not what I was praying for. And maybe you've rebuked the choppy waters of Lake Lanier because they've kept you from fishing and pulling in that big one. But I assure you, friend, nothing you've done, absolutely nothing you've attempted except perhaps prayer has been effective in controlling the weather. I defy any of you to prove me wrong. We'll go outside church right after the service and you can, you can, you can show me your, your talent. We can't do it. Then why does it work for Jesus? Because he's the one who created the wind and the waves. And Mark portrays him as doing what only God can do. As we read a few moments ago in Psalm 107, he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. 
Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Jesus can do this because he created all things and all power and authority belongs to him. Listen to Paul. Paul describes this in Colossians 1. Uh, first of all, he describes how Jesus is the creator of all things, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That's referring to angels, both good and bad. And this includes every water molecule in the Sea of Galilee, every wind current in the jet stream was created and formed by him. But he's not just the creator of all things. Paul says uh, further in this verse, I'll add the end to, end to it now, uh, dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. They were created for him. He's not just the agent of creation. He's also the one for whom all things were created. And not only is the creator an end of creation, Paul goes on to say he's the sustainer of all creation. The next verse says this, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All he needed to do in the boat was just say a word and, and pull the lake back in. Because he sustains all things. Hebrews tells us he does this by the word of his power. Or as one pastor said, he's the atomic glue of the universe. And because of this, because Jesus is the sustainer, uh, the creator, the end and sustainer of all things, he spoke and there was calm. And the calm, look, the calm he creates is is as great as the storm that preceded it. It says it was a huge calm, an enormous calm, a mega calm. And with this, scene two, the curtain on scene two comes down. Jesus speaks and calm follows. And this brings us to the third scene of our drama. And what we see next, puzzling, is a great fear. Something unexpected. Instead of decreasing like we would expect, the disciples' fear actually increases. And Mark, in this portion, Mark mentions two kinds of fear. The first is cowardly fear. Jesus confronts his disciples for their cowardice and timidity. Look at verse 40. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Afraid in verse 40 is, is not the most common word for fear. This term refers to cowardly fear. It means to be fearful, to be cowardly, to lack courage. Matthew uses the same term in his account of this event. Jesus uses this term in John 14. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid, neither let them be cowardly. And apparently that's the kind of fear the disciples displayed on the Sea of Galilee, this, this cowardice. And look at the cause 
of this cowardly fear. Jesus makes a direct connection between this cowardly fear and their lack of faith. He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? He was expecting that his miracles would have meant something to them and that his authority over sickness, which we've seen in the first, first uh, four chapters, his authority over sickness and, and his authority over demons to have had some effect on them. He expected this display of his authority as, as God's king to have given them confidence in a situation like this. Uh, we don't need to fear men. We've got the king on board with us. That obviously hadn't happened. And we see this cowardice. And he rebukes his men for this storm and, and cowardice and not faithful confidence. And I have to confess, and I, I guess you probably do too, that I'm guilty of the same thing. I really can't get on them too much because, you know, I'm as chicken-hearted as the next guy. Um, but then there's a second kind of fear that we encounter, and this kind of fear is holy fear. And by that, I mean fear of that which is holy, which is what Jesus had just put on display. And we see this holy fear emerge from the disciples in verse 41. It says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the more common Greek term for fear. Uh, the words fear, uh, phobos, from which we get our English term phobia. And this refers to alarm or fright caused by imminent pain or danger. And this kind of fear is usually accompanied by the desire to run away from the source of danger. And so the disciples' cowardly fear of the storm has been replaced by an even greater fear, an enormous fear, it says, a mega fear. Great fear. And as he did before, Mark describes the cause of this fear. As 41 continues, And said to one another, Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. The disciples' fear had intensified because of their new understanding of Christ. Their cowardly fear had been replaced by fear of the holy and remember, we've got at least four fishermen on the boat, four experienced seamen, and very familiar with the Sea of Galilee. And they knew this didn't, this storm didn't subside in the usual way a storm does, how it, how it gradually moves away and, and grows quieter as it does so. This megastorm came to an abrupt end, and that is not normal. Something or someone powerful had caused the storm to suddenly dissipate. <coughs> and the power, that power was sitting there in the boat with them. And that power, of course, was Jesus. This was not cowardly fear. This was genuine alarm. This was sheer fright of seeing Christ's holiness 
on display. P Peter had experienced this once before. And Luke describes it to us. Listen to, listen to this other event. And, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet, Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter here experiences this holy fear. And now he experiences it again on the sea uh, as well as the other men as this great fear overcomes them. Listen to Dr. Ferguson again. Mark tells us that the stilling of the natural storm raised a spiritual storm in the disciples' hearts. They were terrified they had taken Jesus just as he was, and now they were awed to discover who he really was. Every test and trial, here's our quote again, every storm in life is another opportunity for you to see the glory of Jesus Christ and discover his power in your life. There's a pastor from California who describes this kind of discovery that Dr. Ferguson is talking about. And this pastor writes this, a group of refugees from Laos who had been attending the church I pastored in Sacramento, California, approached me after the service one Sunday and asked me to be asked to become members. Our church had sponsored the newcomers and they had been attending the church only a few months. They had a rudimentary understanding of the Christian faith, so I suggested we study the Gospel of Mark together for a few weeks to make sure they knew what a commitment to Christ and his church involved. They happily agreed. Despite the Laotians' lack of Christian knowledge, or maybe because of it, the Bible studies were some of the most interesting I've ever led. After reading the passage in which Jesus calms the storm, I asked about the storms in their lives. There was a puzzled look among my Laotian friends, so I explained that we all have storms, problems, worries, troubles, crises, and this story teaches that Jesus can give us peace in the midst of those storms. So what are your storms, I asked. Again, more puzzled silence. Finally, one of the men asked, do you mean that Jesus actually calmed the wind and sea in the middle of a storm? I didn't want to get distracted with the problem of miracles, so I replied, we shouldn't get hung up on the details of the miracle. We should remember that Jesus can calm the storms in our lives. Another stretch of awkward silence ensued until someone said, well, if Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, he must be a powerful man. At this, they all nodded vigorously and chattered excitedly to one another in Lao. Except for me, the room was full of wonder. I suddenly realized that they grasped the story better than I did. They understood this holy fear. You mean he calmed the sea with his words? 
He must be a powerful man. This is holy fear. And the disciples experienced this. Great fear. Mega fear. At the display of Christ's holy power. So, in scene three, we don't see their fear subside. We see it replaced by an even greater fear. The fear of who Christ is. The fear of his holy might. The sheer fright of being in the same boat with power like this. So, what's the purpose of the storms in your life? Why does God allow them? Storms help us see who Jesus is. Storms help us see who Jesus is. And again, let me remind you, every trial, every test and trial, every storm in life is another opportunity for you to see the glory of Jesus Christ and discover his power in your life. And the three scenes of our passage have revealed this to us. The great storm, the great calm, and the great fear. So for you today, uh, and I know many of you are in a storm, not of your own making, then my friend, wait. Be patient. Keep bailing. Keep rowing. Because it's in the storms that we see who Jesus is. And he is waiting. And what he wants to reveal to you in your storm is his holy power, his glory, who he is. Because you don't just quite know exactly who he is yet. He has something more to show you. As much as you believe you know him, you have not even begun. Isn't that good news? Oh, wow. We, the purpose of our storms is that they show us Christ. So this is what we ask for. Jesus, this morning, in a variety of storms around us, that you would help us to see your power at work in our storm. Uh, Savior, I pray that for those here today, you would bring stillness and calmness to their seas and that you would show yourself great among them. And Savior, we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, now a really special thing is about to happen and that is four young men are going to make a public profession of faith in Christ in front of you. So I'm going to ask them to uh, join me back in the fellowship hall and anybody who's helping me with that. Uh, and we'll be back with you uh, momentarily.